0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Wednesday. This is Ken Souter, Biblically Speaking, here on WFYL, 1180 AM, where we are working for your liberty and things that matter. Over the next hour, I will be thinking about some of the issues of the day uh, from a biblical perspective. And what I mean by a biblical perspective is I mean, what does the Bible say about some of these issues? The Bible is truth. I don't know if you realize that or not, or have come to understand that. I certainly have come to understand that and believe it. It is 100% trustworthy. Um, You know, today we're getting all kinds of things out there that people are trying to get you to believe, narratives of one sort or another. Um, But God, in his mercy and in his grace and goodness, has given us a book that we can pick up that we can read and know that what we are hearing is indeed truth. Do you want the truth? Or would you rather be deceived? He has two forces at work in the world. One is God. One is the devil. And the devil is seeking to deceive this world. He says that the Bible says that he's deceiving the nations, Okay, so it implies that a lot of people are following the wrong narrative. However, Jesus, when he was on this earth, and of course he would not lie, he said that the truth shall set you free. And he said his word is truth. And, you know, he believed that the Bible was truth, he believed he referred to many. Old Testament passages claimed that they were authoritative when he was teaching. So would Jesus lie? As I said before, Satan, on the other hand, is the deceiver. He wants to destroy as many as he can. And the way he destroys you is by leading you in the paths of wickedness. Sin, sin will kill you. The wages of sin is death. I don't want you to do that, folks. Uh, I want you to know the truth. And we're going to seek to do that today as we evaluate some of the issues before us. I'm going to be looking at a few articles this morning that I came across this week, which I thought would be interesting uh, to discuss. Um, it seems that, you know, we are really living in the most unusual times, is it not? I, I am 68 years old. I don't believe I've ever imagined a time like we are living in now, where cities are being burned, uh, police are being dismantled, (laughs) mayors are not enforcing the law, as in Philadelphia and other cities. Statues that we all looked up to in one way, shape, or form, or at least they, you know, embodied our history, for good or for bad, uh, are being taken down, systematically, it seems. Churches are under attack Uh, On and on it goes. A friend the other day told me, he says, you know how it feels? He says, it feels like someone, he feels like someone drunk trying to stand still on a ship that's being tossed about by the waves. It's like every day it's one thing or another. What what is going on? Uh, But I, I really want you to understand something here. Biblically speaking, I want you to know, really the big narrative, the meta-narrative that's going on in the world. But I really want to begin with the good news, okay? There is good news in all of this. All this is under God's sovereign control. God is king of the universe. He is ruling and reigning over this world. There is not one thing, not one iota, of anything that happens on this planet that God has not foreordained to happen or allowed to happen for his ultimate plan. What is that plan, you ask? Good question. The plan is to bring about a complete restitution of this world. You can read that in Acts 3.21. By bringing all things... Under the Lordship of Christ. You can read that in Ephesians 1.10. And delivering this all up to God at the end of the world in 1 Corinthians 15.25. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's it in a nutshell. The kingdom of Christ is here. It has come when Christ came to this earth. And when he was resurrected, he went back to heaven in bodily form, where now he is seated at the right hand of God, just as it was prophesied many, many years ago in Psalm 110 by the the King David. All that was prophesied, all that has come to pass, his kingdom is here. Now you say, well, I don't see it. Where is it at? Well, Jesus made it clear that he says his kingdom does not come with observation. It's not like you will see a king uh, riding on a uh, you know what a chariot of some kind, or sitting on a throne in a physical location on Earth, but it's it's more like uh, an invisible force that's working in this world. Uh, there were two parables that Jesus gave in 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 the uh, um, in the uh, Bible. One was their kingdom parables. One was the kingdom of a parable that had to do with the leaven and it in that particular parable it talks about how the leaven uh in you know infiltrates and slowly begins to do its thing you know how leaven works uh, it's very powerful but it's it's slow and almost unnoticeable but it it, it begins to uh, uh, sort of take over and and do its thing uh on the one hand and then the other was the parable of the mustard seed tree it begins small but it grows into something very very big so these were two pictures of what the kingdom is was like okay so just 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 know that in the meantime that that's what's happening okay in the world god's kingdom jesus christ is king sitting at the right hand of the the father is growing is putting all his enemies under his footstool and he is his kingdom is is growing over this earth. You say, "Wow, that doesn't really uh, make sense, does it?" Because look look at the way things are. Uh, well, you know, there's several ways you can look at that. First of all, he didn't say how long it would take for this to take effect throughout the whole world. It would be a slow growing process over time. It could be another couple thousand years. But haven't we seen the kingdom? And the kingdom, what I mean is the Church of Jesus Christ, all the believers in this world continues to grow. It is the largest religion in the world, larger than Islam. And yet it began with Jesus and his 12 followers. And so I would say that's pretty amazing growth in 2,000 years. Think what it will be in another 2,000 years. Um, as Christianity begins to take over the world, yes, there is war going on. There's been war that's been waged since the beginning of time, spiritual warfare, it's the war between God and his fallen angels, uh, Lucifer. Uh, he rebelled against God. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this uh, fall of Lucifer in Isaiah 14:12. And Jesus also reaffirmed the same thing in Luke 10:18, where he says, "I beheld Satan as lightning fall from the heaven. Satan has been cast out of heaven. And Jesus, in his work and what he has done in dying on the cross and defeating uh, the devil and uh, defeating sin and and the devil, he has has now cast Satan out of this world. Little by little, he will be cast out. And Revelation 12.12 says this, Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth! And of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath. Catch this, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. This was written by the apostle John, uh, probably somewhere, uh, you know, before seventy A.D. Uh, this was written. And at that point in time, he he says that the devil knew he had a short time. Now, what do you do when you have a short time and you're really angry? Uh, You're going to be pretty mad, aren't you? You're going to like do everything you can to try to exert your influence and try to defeat your enemy Uh, because he knows his time is short. That is, he knows that the time is limited in which he will be permitted to wage war with the saints on the earth. Uh, within that limited space, Satan knows that he must do all that he can to destroy souls and to spread woe through the earth. And hence, it is not unnatural that he should be represented as excited to a deeper wrath and arousing all his energy to destroy the church. He is desperate. That's what's going on in the world, folks. Satan is desperate. He knows his time is short. And so he is doing everything to extend his wrath, whatever he can do. So if you are a true believer, know that Christ is presently ruling over this earth. He is progressively, that is slowly but surely, reducing Satan's influence. He will never destroy it all, completely. But his influence will increase, Satan's will decrease, by making his and our enemies his footstool. Very important verse you got to know. First Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign till he have put all enemies under his feet. John Gill, the uh, Puritan, wrote this. He says, therefore, the kingdom cannot be given up till all rule and government be cast down so that while the world lasts, Jesus as the Messiah and mediator must reign and all human beings are properly his subjects are under his government, and are accountable to him. God has established a new world order as Jesus Christ is the king of that new world order. Ephesians 1.10 puts it very nicely. It says this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So let not your heart be troubled I do not Worry about what's going on I do not fear what's going on I know God has got it all under control It's all part of his master plan And that Satan is going to be Ultimately defeated Even though he's going to make a lot of trouble in the meantime To be sure But as God's people we can resist him The Bible says Resist the devil he will flee from you God will protect his people Through the wrath that is falling upon this world right now, and we have nothing to fear. Okay, so I said we were going to, that's kind of my intro there for talking about the subjects that we're going to discuss today. And um, my first one is uh, an article that was uh, written by a a pastor, Wallace B. Henley. This is found on the ChristianPost.com. And I like. I like the, the. It was really catchy. For me, what he says, he says uh, the, the title of the article is "Calling for Real Profits." Um, I'll just read some of these sections here and and make some comments on it. But the United States, he says, needs a great protector. Um, said Steve Cordy, he's a writer for Real Clear Politics, on July one. Donald Trump. In Cortez's view, needs to transition from being the great disruptor to take on the role of great protector of the American people, especially the middle class. However, he goes on to say, "We know we now need something far greater than that. We need more than a protector. Contemporary moment of madness prompts a call for real prophets to rise up and do what prophets do." Prophetic truth is the flame that can reduce to ashes the lies and misrepresentations that sever people people from God and one another. And he says here, Jesus himself prophesied in Matthew 24, the coming of lawlessness. Boy, is that not what we're seeing today. In the intense testing of that age, many people would fall away, he said, said the Lord. Another phenomenon would be the emergence of many false prophets. Lawlessness, apostasy, and false prophets abound in our present society. Amen. We urgently need true prophets. Uh, He says here, trying to foretell the future we don't need. But the fourth tellers who proclaim Christ and his kingdom of goodness, justice, peace and spirit given joy and hold us to that vision are crucial in the confusion of our age. And he says here, the prophets we need will not be mere mortals. They will at times be nervous Nellies like Elijah. He was a nervous Nellie when he heard Queen Jezebel was after his hide <laughs> They may stumble in their human weakness, but always they will burn with the word of God. Hearers will know that the Lord has spoken through a frail human. Frail human. Yes, that's what God uses. God uses ordinary people, little people, people that are not part of the establishment and people that would not be approved by the establishment. The ultimate prophet was Jesus Christ himself, of course. And what did they do to him? He was despised and rejected of men. He was God himself in the flesh, and he was rejected completely by the establishment. He says here, a few Sundays ago, I played a film clip at the church where I am preaching In the video, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his great I Have a Dream speech. I remember that back in 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And he notes here, he says, At the conclusion, my audience applauded at length for words uttered 57 years ago by a man dead for 52 years. A contemporary congregation at the church watching a grainy film clip and listening to a scratchy soundtrack track. Nevertheless, recognized a truly prophetic word. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's something about a prophet, a prophetic word that, you know, you when you hear it, it is commanding, is authoritative, and it does touch your inner being. Why is it that so few, he says today, realize the seriousness of our present crisis, wondering wondered bishop fulton sheen in 1947 now that was before my time but uh, he was on tv on saturday night and he he says uh, he says here he gave the answer partly because men do not want to believe their own times are wicked partly because it involves too much self-accusation and principally because they have no standards outside of themselves by which to measure their times very perceptive Men do not want to believe that we are in wicked times. It involves too much self-accusation. We might have to rethink all that we've believed. And it could be self-accusatory. And he says, principally, uh, they have no standards outside of themselves by which to measure their times. Where do we go for a standard to tell what is right or what is wrong? Um, Only those who live by faith know what is happening in the world. Amen. The great masses, without faith, are unconscious of the destructive process going on. It's just amazing. It's so true. People are wondering, what is going on? Many who watched and listened to Bishop Sheen's regularly televised broadcast knew they were hearing a prophetic man, especially when he said, the only way out of this crisis is spiritual. The time is nearer than you think. Boy, was that true then? And it is even more true now. I try to convince, try to talk to my friends and say, look, what's going on? You're focusing too much on what's going on on the stage. You got to get behind the stage and see who's pulling the strings and making it all happen. This is spiritual warfare. okay? this is this is a spiritual battle that we're in. And you're either on one side or the other. You're either a useful idiot of the devil and doing his bidding or you are on Christ's side and you were a follower of his and you were seeking to um, work, as it were, with with him and his his um, his goals over this earth. Um, and here it is right now. We are living in it. It says, John Edmund Hag- 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 Haggai, I can't even pronounce that, my beloved friend and mentor, mused preachers are praised as administrators, after-dinner speakers, book reviewers, counselors, good mixers, organizational workers, program ushers, program pushers, but whatever happened to preaching? Preaching, the proclamation of God's word in an authoritative manner. And we might ask this crucial period, whatever happened to prophetic preaching? It says America now has no shortage of soothsayers, analysts, and prognosticators. We got everybody that can identify the problem. Uh, their grave countenances stare at us by stare at us big brother like from TV and computer screens, attempting to sound like wizened sages. Their ponderous tones tell us how to think and what is really happening according to them. And who the good guys and the bad guys are, they venerate those who win their favor and vilify those they hate. So we need, he says, an authentic prophetic voice that will get in the faces of the titans and the information establishment and declare that they and their propaganda will not tell us what and how to think. That is where it's at, folks. There is propaganda being put out every day. Everybody's trying to tell you what and how to think. And it's not right. It's another narrative. It's a ungodly, anti-Christian, anti-God narrative that's out there. We need daring men and women flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, to tell the snake oil hucksters and the academic establishment that we see through their pretense and shallow sophistries. In this hour, there is need for bold prophets who will control the Herodian political establishment with the truth that his silvery garments are hidden, are hiding infestations of worms inside. Wow. We don't need more psychopaths. uh, Psychophants? fact spinners? Fake news disseminators of left and right, appeasers, media wizards, propaganda contrivers, placators, deep-steep bottom feeders, or pompous pulpiteers, but real prophets. They may be stutterers like Moses, rugged like John the Baptist, ragged like Jeremiah after his stay in the cistern. As the biblical prophets discover, the establishments will deal harshly with them. And the sequence will be the same, marginalization, caricat- caricatization, vilification, criminalization, incarceration, and elimination. Nevertheless, let the prophets rise up on the street corners in city squares, in stadiums, and church pulpits. May God anoint prophets to infuse our deluded culture with sobering, life-giving, liberating truth." He says, "We have at the moments of protest, we will now have the karyos, the opportune hour of the prophets and the prophetic church." So, what is that? What do you think about that? Um, I, I believe he's he's spot on, and you know what we have today, unfortunately, are many professionally trained pastors in pulpits that are there because, well. They, I believe, they're sincere. Many of them. There's, there's no doubt. I don't want to question their sincerity. But the reality is, is that you know they have to sort of toe the line in their denomination. They would not dare step out of the bounds of of uh, saying anything that would be appear to be uh, out of out of bounds. And and also the other thing that is very uh, important to know is where they get their salaries from. It's from the congregation. So what are you going to do? You're going to offend people in your congregation who are paying your salary? Um, but anyway, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on pastors. There's many excellent pastors out there that are doing a very good job on this, and they are real prophets in our day. But uh, anyway, I think, I think the whole thing here is the narrative. What is the narrative that you are believing today? We need men of God to stand up and fearlessly proclaim the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And in terms of are there any out there today, yes, I would say there are uh, out there. I, I can think of a few on, on Sermon Audio. Uh, Jason Cooley would be one. Um, uh, just uh, a few others would be uh, Pastor Robert Rubino. He's been on this show. Um, and Pastor Joel Saint, good friend of mine. Um And so, yeah, there's 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 many of them out there that are really proclaiming the truth in this in this day and age. And uh, boy, we need it. We need it more than anything else. Um, So that's that article. Uh, The the next the next article that I really wanted to to take a look at is uh, has to do with uh, a U.S. woman faces jail time for adultery. Uh, This is going to be a very interesting subject (laughs) today. Um, We're going to look at adultery. And, you know, there used to be a time when every, I believe every state in the union had a law against adultery, punishable by either imprisonment or fine or both. So we want to look at this whole idea of, you know, what should the state be doing about sexual sins, if anything? Adultery, fornication, um, those kinds of things. U.S. woman faces jail time for adultery. An Arizona woman, says here, could be jailed for adultery in her estranged husband's request for an adultery law to be enforced are finally granted. Uh, Tracy Banks is accused of having several extramarital affairs during her 17-year marriage to David Banks, and now faces criminal charges, according to ABC News. While Tracy admits to having two affairs, David insists she committed adultery many more times and spent years urging police in Glendale, Arizona, to investigate, which they have finally agreed to do. It says here, according to an Arizona statute, a married Person who commits adultery under any circumstances is guilty of a class three misdemeanor. It also states that no prosecution for adultery shall be commenced except upon complaint of the husband or wife. Therefore, Banks could be prosecuted as a result of David's complaint to law enforcement. If she is found guilty, she faces up to one month in prison or a hefty fine Uh, critics have questioned the ethics behind law enforcement weighing in on marriage issues with some arguing that it is unethical interference and that marriage is a private matter that should be kept between the two parties I would say that's probably the prevailing thinking today right or wrong that's what most people think hey you know it's, it's not really a Anything that's that serious, it's a private matter. Just just get out of my life and and let me do what I want to do. Other critics, he says here, have taken to Twitter arguing in favor of the controversial law, insisting that it's it acts as an incentive for spouses to remain faithful. So there's the other side of the argument. Can you imagine what it would be like to have to face some kind of serious penalty for being caught uh, in adultery? Uh, would it? You know, act as an incentive to remain faithful. I do believe that it would, and the more serious the penalty. And we're going to look at what the what the Bible actually says about adultery and and penalizing, and, and what kind of penalty it it should carry. But uh, insisting that it acts as an incentive for spouses to remain faithful. Um, go Arizona; they have an adultery law uh, in Arizona. <laughs> fine and 30 days in jail. Uh, Bet you don't cheat then, Cassie Smith tweeted. Um, Just learned, uh, here's another quote, just learned adultery is anything is, I'm sorry, just learned adultery is against the law in Arizona. Class three misdemeanor. I think every state should have this law. And hashtag marriage, hashtag affair, Chris Shoemate wrote, uh, David was unsympathetic about the prospect of his estranged wife going to jail for cheating on him and suggested it would be a good example for others. Quote, if they used it all the time, maybe women or men would think twice about going and jumping in the sack and throwing away their marriage, he told CBS affiliate KPHO. so this this is an article which I thought would be of interest to examine you know biblically what how should we uh, you know look at look at adultery um, in this day and age um, well first of all, does the Bible say anything well of course it does it mentions adultery in the Old Testament it mentions adultery in the New Testament um, and really my question, to you and to anyone listening, the civil authorities, if, if any of them are listening, is what is an appropriate, if any, uh, punishment for adultery in our day. Um, you know, the Bible uh, gives us, uh, says in, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 22, I believe it is, uh, where it specifically mentions um, that if a man, Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Wow. That's what the particular crime was. And as was the punishment in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, R.J. Rush Dooney, who is a uh, – uh, he is gone. He is no longer with us, but uh, an expert really in biblical law, uh, explains why this was such a, uh, a harsh penalty uh, in the Old Testament. And perhaps why we might even want to consider that today. According to biblical law, he wrote, adultery is on the same level as the murder of an individual. It is an act of murder against the central institution of society. It is treason to the family. Treason to the family. I thought what was interesting in that quote was he mentioned that it's it's akin, it's, a, it's like murder, against the central institution of society. Did you ever realize that the family is the central institution of society. There are three basic institutions that God created. There is the family. That is the most foundational. There is the church. That is another institution created by God. And there is the government, the civil authorities. Um, they all have their realm of, of responsibility. Okay. So this is an attack. And that's why the penalty was so Harsh, because it realizes in this day and age, we don't even think about that too much, do we? Do we realize how how central to a civil society is the family? Of course, the uh, liberals and uh, Democrats and many others, and even a lot of Republicans, sadly, have not really been uh, defending the family and, and passing laws that protect the family. I, I guarantee you, if you are married and you find out your spouse has committed adultery, it's going to be like a murder. Uh, it's a horrible thing. It's just, it you'll never really truly get over it, I don't believe. Um, and you say, well, this is you know, pretty radical stuff. I mean, you, you're actually advocating that, we should be stoning to death those who are found guilty through a, you know, a jury duty, a jury trial, and so forth. Uh, you know, just like we do now, should be put to death. Well, it's not that radical if you think about the history of our nation. Um, there were uh, in in the when the Puritans came over here in 1647 is called the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. It was a law code, really, that was written uh, for uh, the new colonies as they tried to organize themselves and figure out, you know, what do we do with, you know, crimes? How do we figure out what's a crime and what's the uh, righteous judgment or punishment that should be meted out for that particular crime? And believe it or not, they had 12 different Crimes that were capital crimes. Okay, these are crimes committed that would bring on capital punishment or death. Um, One of them, I'll just read through these real quickly if I have a little time here though, but uh, it says, uh, you know, if any man uh, after legal conviction shall have or worship any other God but the Lord God, he shall be put to death. And what they did is they referenced these Old Testament laws. Deuteronomy 13, 6, 10, Deuteronomy 17, 2, 6, Exodus 22, 20. Uh, For that particular one. Uh, Any man or woman be a witch that is, hath consulted with a familiar spirit. They shall be put to death. Okay. Any person shall blaspheme the name of God the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost, with direct, express, presumptuous, or high-handed blasphemy, or shall curse God in like manner, he shall be put to death. Leviticus 24, verses 15 and 16. If any person commit any willful murder, which is manslaughter, committed upon predetermined malice, hatred, or cruelty, not in a... Uh, I I can't really see here. It's a little small on the print. I apologize. But anyway, for murder, it was a capital crime. And also we have here, um, if any person slayeth another suddenly in his anger or cruelty or passion, he shall be put to death. Uh, If any person slay uh, another through guile, either by poisoning or other such devilish practice, he shall be put to death. Um, how about, uh, bestiality, uh, if any man or woman shall lie with a beast or a brute creature by carnal copulation, they shall surely be put to death. Uh, so I go on and on. That's number eight and you got nine, 10, 11, but, uh, sodomy, if any man, uh, lieth with a woman, both of them, if, if any man lieth with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall Surely be put to death. Adultery also surely be put to death. Man stealeth or a man from mankind, that is kidnapping, that was a death penalty. And a false witness, uh, willingly and on purpose to take away any man's life, he shall be put to death. So slander and lying and those sorts of things really carry the death penalty. But again, this is this is our history. This is something you will really never really hear about. And uh, what's happening now is actually states are scrambling. It says here's an article, Adultery and Fornication. Why are states rushing to get these outdated laws off the books? Uh, This is an excellent article that talks about uh, at least seven states are working to amend or repeal outdated sex laws. And they asked the question why, and, and he really goes through it here. And they, they the summation of this article is that it is believed that now that the Supreme Court is decidedly one vote in favor of conservative policies, that many of these states want to get these laws off the books before they actually come before the Supreme Court, as, the, um, as happened in 2003 which struck down a Texas sodomy law because it violated the plaintiff's right to privacy. However, there's never really been any uh, challenge to the court for adultery and and fornication. So the thinking is that uh, before that happens, they will uh, seek to uh, get them off the books. Uh, so... Um, uh, you know, Pennsylvania does not have a law for adultery or fornication at this point. Um, again, the the idea is, well, why not? Why don't we have some kind of a a law against this? Uh, what would you recommend? Um, Alabama, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Kansas, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, New York, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, Virginia, Wisconsin, all have. Uh, sexual acts are, are legal uh, if at least one of the parties is married to someone else. So still on the books, um, still illegal. Um, so there's my thinking on that. You can uh, certainly reach out to me if you'd like at the station. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear that. And I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail for that. But at any rate, um, I'd like to just move on to the next Next article here, which is, uh, should churches comply with California's ban on singing? Okay, so California um, has, uh, and this is July the 7th, California, as you know, with COVID-19 and all that's happening, uh, the state originally just kind of started out with, a, a you know, uh, guidance and recommendations to... Um, you know, uh, wear masks and so forth to slow the spread. And that was only supposed to be a a, a, basically a two-week event. Well, that has morphed and evolved into even much more, uh, you know, to the point where the state now really has full control uh, over the church in terms of what they should or should not be doing while worshipping. California says, has issued a ban on corporate singing. How should churches proceed? Thankfully, there are biblical and historical precedents that help inform Christian leaders. The Apostle Paul commands every person to be subject to governing authorities. We read that in Romans 13, also in 1 Peter 2. Are you two areas there, the scriptures where you need to look at that teaching? What are Christians to do when governing authorities at local, state, and national levels, issuing conflicting directives, and send mixed messages. Uh, Such is the predicament of evangelicals in many locations in America today. I don't know if you are a believer and you're going to church every week and have experienced all this. If you don't go to church, this doesn't mean anything to you. But for uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who know that it's— commanded of God. And we delightfully so honor the Lord's day by worshiping him in person not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but uh, so much the sort, so much more as the day approaches that we should be gathering together as his people. Uh, we are finding ourselves in quite a predicament uh, in, and it says in this article here, he says in the letters from the Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King, Jr., Wrote that Christians not only have a moral obligation to obey just laws, but an equal, equally compelling obligation to disobey unjust laws. Okay, this line of reasoning has deep roots in the Christian tradition. It reflects both Catholic instruction in the catechism, it goes back to Augustine, Augustine. An unjust law is no law at all, he said. And Thomas Aquinas, Protestants agree on the matter of unjust laws. Martin Luther may evidence this best. This is not Martin Luther King Jr. This is Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s. He wrote something called temporal authority, which he says that it is no one's duty to do wrong. We must obey God rather than men. So it is no one's duty to do wrong. Uh, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, Christian history makes a compelling case for the invalidity, invalidity, inval, invalidity, <laughs> invalidity, and dismissiveness of unjust laws. It was reasonable for Christian churches to stop meeting while medical professionals assessed the threat and learned about the virus. However, as the goals of quarantine evolve from intermediate from immediate flattening the curve to the indefinite finding a vaccine. Oh boy, isn't that tricky? We are now under, we got to wait till we find a vaccine. Uh, It is no longer reasonable for churches to comply with directives against corporate worship. Such open ended prohibitions against worship are unjust. Um, you know, the Bible helps Christians to appreciate the invalidity, invalidated, invalidity of unjust laws. They're invalid. For example, the Israelites, if you think about who refused to worship false gods in the book of Daniel, are commended for their courageous faith in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, they're commended for essentially disobeying the, uh, the king. Biblical theology as a whole attests that God's law is above human law. Anglican bishop and philosopher George Berkeley wrote in his essay, a discourse addressed to magistrates and men in authority that, and it is wise, although at the risk of liberty or life, to obey God rather than men. Scripture makes it clear also that there is a time for Christians to assert their legal rights in obedience to God, and he talks about in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul was in prison, and the magistrates let him go. Therefore, he went. He he was supposed to just leave, but no, he he uh, he came back, and he, he wanted to meet with them face to face and make sure that they uh, would give him the message directly. Uh, he and they they looked. They took him out and they asked him to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. But anyway, that's that's one area where you can see obviously that he's asserting his earthly citizenship in service to his kingdom, uh, to the kingdom of God, God's kingdom. Paul uh, models reasonable obedience to earthly authorities a willingness to decry injustice, and an ultimate concern for the ongoing work of the ministry. Christians today are confronted with a dilemma which Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, and King have all addressed in a consistently biblical manner. A government does not have the right to forbid that which Christ has commanded. When human laws conflict divine laws, Christians must be loyal to Christ. And there's so many believers today that think that, well, if the government said it and there's a law, I have to follow it no matter what. Because they're told that, look, read in Romans 13, that you're supposed to obey all commands that come from the civil authorities because they are working as God's ministers. And you want to obey them, right? Well, Would you obey your parents if they told you to steal? Would you obey your pastor if he told you to go out and commit fornication? Uh, No, absolutely not. There are limits. Uh, But thankfully, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees freedom of religion. Freedom of religion is the first freedom, okay, upon which the logic and proper functions of a well-ordered society may be established and thrive. Um, The Christian religion— know, is very much about meeting together. Prohibits, you know, the Christian prohibits Christians from neglecting to meet together physically. Okay, in obedience to Christ in Hebrews ten twenty five, we read that, uh, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, and God commands us to sing also in Colossians three sixteen, gathering for worship on Sunday for both preaching and singing is essential to the faithful practice and public witness of the Christian faith. It is a hill on which to die, he says. Now, Think about that. Um, The physicality of our faith is amazing. Uh, You know, I just drew up a list a couple weeks ago thinking about this, you know, that the, the Bible talks about the right hand of fellowship. We are to shake hands. Well, that's now forbidden. Nobody wants to shake hands. Uh, also, speaks of a holy kiss. Okay, um, you know, so that's also pretty much uh, forbidden today. The holy kiss—you, you, you, you know—you wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to get that close to somebody. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we really see that the, the church is in a real, real dilemma right now. What are we going to do? And uh, what are we gonna? How are we gonna? Who are we gonna follow? You know, are we gonna follow the Word of God, or are we gonna follow the state? And this is really coming down to an issue where I think this the the churches are going to divide over at some point. I believe you're going to have what I want to call a state-run church, and that's a church that's going to do everything that the state tells them to do. And then you're going to have those who are opposed to that, who are essentially going to uh, rebel against that and not do what the state says and I think that's going to be an interesting time in the church history not unlike uh, what happened uh, uh, you know in the Puritan era in, in England uh, we we had those who were followers of of the state churches and those who were not and that is really what drove the Puritans to try to come for religious freedom to our country, to our shores here, because they were essentially being, uh, over, overridden by, uh, the state authorities. The state has no authority over the church, uh, in, in its, in ecclesiastical matters per se. It does have authority over the people sitting in the pews, uh, the civil authority. So, uh, if you commit a crime, you are under their authority, uh, to, uh, you know, face that, face that crime and be tried for it. But in terms of uh, civil authority uh, ruling in the ecclesiastical realm, no, there is such a thing as separation of church and state. And the state has no authority over the church. The church has no authority over the state. These two are very different spheres of influence, as I mentioned earlier in the program. Um, But here's, also, just to realize that it doesn't mean that, um, you know, oftentimes when you hear separation of church and state, I'm not saying separation of God from state. That's something completely different. That is not what our founders believed in. They believed that, uh, you know, each state uh, could have their own established religion, uh, but that the federal government was not to make any law respecting religion, that this was totally and the uh, realm of each and every state. So Maryland was more or less a Catholic state and Pennsylvania was a Quaker state. And you've got, you know, different states with different religions. And if you didn't want to live in that state, you could move to another state that was more friendly to your faith. There's nothing wrong with that. We are not saying separation of God from state. Um, One more article, I think I want to, take a stab at here if I can if I haven't already no I think that's pretty much it but yeah so this is this is where we're at today folks um, uh, you know I just would love to hear your feedback on all this but just remember this that uh, what's going on in the world today is essentially a spiritual warfare that's what's happening uh, it's not a you know politics is really nothing more uh, than the externalization of religion. So if you want to see what the religion of a nation is, look at their politics. Uh, I submit to you that the religion of the United States is secular humanism. It is not uh, the God of the Bible. It does not reflect the laws of the God of the Bible. Uh, I would submit to you that uh, many, many people in this country, even some who claim to be Christians, would uh, really fall in line with socialism and income redistribution and, and those sorts of things that uh, are being promoted by secular humanism. Uh, the, the issue is who's God is state is the state God or is God, God. Okay. Many people look to the state uh, today uh, as their source of security, as the uh, ultimate authority. And that's where the rub is going to be in the future. And then in the days ahead, we're going to see uh, really where, your loyalty is, are you going to uh, stand with Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his word and his uh, new world order, as it were? Or are you going to stand with the secular humanists and follow their uh, their playbook uh, as it manifests itself in many different ways? Basically, an anti-Christian movement uh, is out there today uh, vying for your attention, vying for your uh, loyalty. Uh, many young people are being taken in with this, unfortunately. Uh, and it's it's very sad. So uh, ultimately, though, I want you to know that that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has come to this world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He says he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're all lost. We're all born in sin. We're all uh, bound uh, in that way, and we don't even know it. Uh, Satan wants to destroy you, but Jesus Christ came to provide a ransom. He says uh, he He came to be a ransom uh, for His people, and the way He did that was to die on a cross, to shed His blood on our behalf, to make an atonement to please God to pay for our sins in that way. He was perfect in every way. He was God, and yet he was fully man and fully God. And that would be the only sacrifice that God would accept. Uh, One whose blood was pure, as Christ was. He was born as a virgin, miraculously. He lived a perfect life, and then he offered up himself on the cross to suffer the pangs of death and hell that we all deserve on our behalf. And so that, that is really why he came to start as a new world order to begin to reclaim that which Satan had took, taken away in the garden and how he has tried to seek and to destroy us uh, as his people. So how do you get this? By be receiving him. That whosoever shall believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, it says. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Friends, today is the day of salvation. You do not want to be under the clutches of Satan. You are under his dominion. And you can be freed from that and you will have eternal life. You will have abundant life, life that is just worth living every single day. And I encourage you to do that. If you want to know more about that, how to do that, I would encourage you to reach out to the station. You can either call them or email them Uh, and I would be happy to speak with you one on one. So with that, folks, I, I truly encourage you today to study God's word. It is where all truth is. Don't believe the lies. Don't be deceived by the devil. Uh, Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.